0: Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Cognitive Dissidence. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm also a partner and the director of geopolitical analysis at Cognitive Investments. Joining me on the podcast is Matthew Pines. Uh, Matt is a management consultant at the Krebs Stamos Group, and he is a fellow at the Bitcoin Policy Institute. He is not here in his capacity at Krebs Stamos Group, but he is a management consultant there. we recorded this on August the 11th. This will come out in a couple of weeks. This is one of the episodes that I pre-recorded while I'm out on my paternity leave. Um, I don't think anything in here is that time-sensitive. We talked about mostly about the geopolitics of cybersecurity, a really good primer on that topic, and a little bit about Bitcoin. We're gonna have Matt back on to talk about Bitcoin later. Otherwise, um, you can write to me at jacob at cognitive.investments, though I'm not really checking my email that closely right this second. Um, We'll be back to our normal cadence shortly. Uh, But in the meantime, hit me up there. Hope you enjoy this podcast. If you haven't rated or reviewed the podcast yet, please consider doing so. Uh, And otherwise, cheers. Thank you for listening. See you out there. Cognitive Investments LLC is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where cognitive and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. For additional information, please visit our website at www.cognitive.investments. The information provided is for educational and informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice, and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security. It does not take into account any investor's particular investment objectives, strategies, tax status, or investment horizon. You should consult your attorney or tax advisor. Matt, you're, uh, you're joining a long line of humans that I've met on Twitter and eventually we chat and you come on the podcast and, and we talk about interesting things. So it's really nice, A, to have you on the show and B, to know that Twitter is not just a cesspool of awfulness.
1: <laughs> not all of it, no, thanks for having me.
0: Um, we're going we're gonna to try and cover two big topics. I don't know whether we're going to get full. Fo- Maybe we'll stick on the first one and we'll have to bring you back for the second one. But the reason um, I was interested in having you on initially was because I'm conscious of how little I understand um, cybersecurity and how cybersecurity intersects with geopolitics. It's been one of the mm-hmm. blind spots, I would, I would say, in my um, analytical toolkit for a long time, and for a lot of different reasons, I am quickly remedying yeah. <laughs> uh, that problem. So, in some ways, um, our conversation is meant to help me do that. Um, but I'm also hoping we can sort of point the listeners to separating signal from noise and understanding what you should be worried about, what you shouldn't be worried about, things like that. So, if you're talking to somebody who you know is fairly well informed about politics but doesn't mm-hmm. feel like they know anything about cybersecurity or where would you tell them to start for orienting from sort of an analytical framework? Like, how how do you start thinking about an issue that is as big and as amorphous as cybersecurity?
1: Yes, it is uh, quite a complex topic that touches everything from like, you know, the humdrum, you know, best practices, like two-factor authorization, change your password regularly, that sort of basic stuff, which is not necessarily geopolitically relevant, but it's sort of the bedrock upon which, you know, how you protect yourself, your organization, et cetera, um, and there's a lot of, of research and best practices that the government puts out, the private sector puts out about how to secure your individual networks, your corporate networks, all the way up to sort of government networks. Um, from a, like a geopolitical perspective, the key um, sort of analytical framework that I think you need to slot uh, cybersecurity in is is as a emerging instrument of national power that can be used to coerce um, competitor states and sort of um, help support what sort of what you, know, what you might call sort of sub-threshold subthreshold conflict um, you know, it goes by various names, you know asymmetric warfare, gray zone warfare, hybrid warfare, et cetera. Um, and so cybersecurity as an element uh, that states can leverage to support that sort of domain of, of, of competition uh, is where it becomes much more relevant to sort of a geopolitical perspective. Um, and that's where the questions of uh, you know deterrence, uh, questions of um, sort of cyber physical effects and sort of the broader, Evolution that the United States and, and our allies and 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 competitor states um, start to think about cybersecurity as as a weapon or as a tool of economic coercion or as a way to destabilize their their their, uh, their competitor societies, and so that's where I sort of uh, I think is more interesting to get into that topic. Other than you know, there's a lot of written about um, kind of more technical aspects of cybersecurity. You know, what does zero trust mean? Um, and there's you know quite a professional uh, discipline that looks at these questions and makes recommendations to corporations, to governments, to individuals, small businesses, et cetera, about how to, um, you know, make sure their cybersecurity practices uh, are sort of up to snuff. Um, that's probably not as interesting for kind of the geopolitical analysts who are trying to think about how this is gonna play a role in kind of the unfolding dynamic of, of sort of increasing competition and geopolitical conflict this decade. So that's where I think we can kind of dig into it um, and start looking at it from that angle. That's uh,
0: yeah although i I don't want to leave questions like zero trust and things like that because i think they are interesting is is it um like because you're talking about the sort of tactical aspects of Mm two-factor authentication and all these passwords that i can't remember Mm -hmm. but i mean is it is it going so far to say that that actually could represent a serious threat if like somebody who's working at a major water utility or at a major Mm -hmm. sort of defense plant like, you know, clicks on the link that the Nigerian prince sent him $25 million and input some information. I mean, that's sort of the back way into at least some of these types of things, right? Or am I simplifying things too much?
1: No, 100%. And that's, you know, if, if uh, well, there are a lot of advanced techniques uh, to really get after hard targets, um, often uh, you know, the attackers will wanna go for the low-hanging fruit, right? And so they're not gonna use the most advanced quote unquote zero day exploits if they can just find sort of uh, an unlocked door and walk in that way. And that's actually what happened with the Colonial Pipeline a ransomware incident where essentially a former administrator uh, had set up a sort of remote um, access to the operational network and uh, wasn't using two-factor authorization, never changed his password. And so that was an easy way, a relatively easy way uh, to get into a critical infrastructure network and cause you know strategic level effects uh, that, that the United States had to respond to, um, and it wasn't exactly a very advanced attack. And so that that is definitely um, you know strategically relevant when you have uh, you know best practices that are pretty basic not being followed. Um, so for example, like the the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency (CISA), which is the uh, domestic agency responsible for uh, cybersecurity as well as infrastructure uh, security more generally. Um, is really focused on providing best practices and trying to like bring up the lower bar of capability uh, across the board um, uh, in, in domestic infrastructure. Uh, and there's like 16 critical infrastructure sectors that they define, you know, things that that sort of keep society running. Um, and, and society has become ever more digitally enabled and all of these uh, critical, critical infrastructure networks, um, you know, when they fail, uh, can have strategic uh, and sort of cascading impacts. And so that's where the question uh, of domestic preparedness, domestic resilience, um, is becoming extremely uh, relevant. Um, and from a like an international sort of geopolitical perspective, it, the net effect is it sort of closes uh, the virtual geographic distance between our adversaries and us. You know, the United States was a and is a, a continental power, protected on both sides by oceans and north and south by by friendly neighbors, and that sort of gave us an inherent defensive advantage. Uh, in a global system uh, where our competitor states had borders that they had to defend with potentially hostile states. And that sort of structures their entire uh, sort of frame for defense and national security. Um, the United States, you know, was able to kind of, um, uh, you know, kind of protect itself uh, by virtue of just its geographic advantage. And cybersecurity, you know, closes that virtual distance. That's not a very, um, you know, uh, insightful observation, but I think it's, it's it's still strategically critical because it means that um, states have a way to strike uh, at, at our domestic um capabilities in a way that would, you know, would never be able to do, right? You can't just like land, like the Chinese are never going to land an amphibious, um, uh, you know, invasion group in California, right? Um, but they can cause debilitating uh, and sort of society, uh, you know, societal destabilizing effects using cyber potentially. Uh, and that is, that, that makes it, you know, strategically relevant from a, geo, uh, a geopolitical perspective.
0: Well, I don't know. I, I remember I was in high school and I met um, a family friend's new boyfriend And I I remember vividly he came into our house and was telling me that Hurricane Katrina was actually a Chinese plan to invade the United States via the Mississippi River. And he was very convinced this was going to happen. So never say never. Um, (laughs) But I love this idea of closing the distance between the United States and the rest of the world. Because you're right. This is the one geopolitical fact that allows the U.S. to make incredible mistakes, like the Iraq War, for example. And really, I mean, we've paid a cost for it in terms of lives and money and things like that. But most countries, if they made a mistake on, on that order of magnitude, would probably collapse, probably wouldn't be around mm-hmm. anymore. And the United States can sort of shrug it off and go on to its next sort of big mistake. Um, is there any Again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show my own ignorance here, but I think it's good yeah. to ask stupid questions and, and learn that way. Is, is there any way in which distance still does help the United States from a cyber perspective? Like, can we pull up the drawbridge in some ways? Can we cut off submarine cables to actors <laughs> that are trying to penetrate the network somewhere? Or am I misunderstanding how the actual sort of infrastructure back end works for how different countries or different actors might attack U.S. networks?
1: Well, one important thing to, to, you know, why is is cybersecurity itself a target is because it's uh, the backbone of how much modern uh, economies function, right? Right? Like the internet, if it was just, you know, cat memes and sort of Twitter uh, banter, right? Hitting, attacking that and taking that down, you know, wouldn't necessarily be a big deal. But it's the fact that modern enterprise networks are built in the cloud, right? So one of the major changes has happened in sort of how the modern corporation functions is the rise of sort of uh, cloud services, where the, the the company itself doesn't usually maintain their own servers for their own um, corporate networks, they use these large cloud service providers, um, where all of the co- the corporate you know data and functions exist. And so, like to the extent the company exists at all and is able to accomplish its economic objectives, relies on those services functioning. And so that's where it moves from being okay, you know, the internet is cat memes, to where it is critical infrastructure for the basic. Um, performance of our economy uh, and in an open economy where the provision of these services and where these corporations are globally integrated taking down those networks can have dramatic effect on on the equity values and and employment if these companies go bankrupt and so we are an, we are a global um, power it means our, our our companies are are integrated with um uh, most of the rest of the world uh and so pulling up the drawbridges, you know it doesn't really like that would basically just be you know Accomplishing our adversaries' um, uh, uh, objectives for them. <laughs> uh, if they want to cut our cables, uh, that's going to have a lot of a, of a strategic effect on us because you know, we were the ones who standed to benefit from the Internet itself. You know, that was um, you know, the backbone upon which a globalization really happened. Um, you had the kind of hard infrastructure of trade and manufacturing outsourcing. But sort of the second wave was a globalization of services, right? Huge amounts of, of, of services are provided from other countries to American citizens, um, and if those were disrupted, it would have uh, you know debilitating effects on our in our economy. Um, so yeah, so you mentioned like one one vector of attack is these like the internet isn't just this sort of ethereal thing that sort of floats in the quote unquote cloud. It's hard infrastructure. It is it is it is fiber optic cables. It is um, satellites. It is uh, relays. It is uh, it is a whole web of infrastructure and data centers that uh, you know are physically located, um, and those are becoming and have become uh, sites of of sort of you know, you might call um, in the in like the the intelligence world right. Those are sites of of, of, of extreme uh, contest. Um, it's been well known that like lots of governments that have uh, submarine cap- uh, capability uh, tap those fiber optic cables to collect intelligence. Uh, but that same capability can be uh, leveraged to, to cut those cables. Um, and the internet is a decentralized system, but it's uh, you know it's it's self-healing up to a point. And so you can cut a cable, you can, you can cut a cable, you can sort of cause some um, minor disruptions. But for the most part, the internet can sort of self-heal and route around those sorts of um, breaks in the network. There are you know, but it's a nonlinear system. So if you make a number of these cuts in strategic locations. Uh, up to a point you can you can take uh, large swaths of the network down and uh, you know there's only so so much you can repair in so into such amount of time so that is especially a concern in financial markets right You know there's certain cables that connect say London to New York right or connect you know Hong Kong to to other sort of trading um, uh, networks and those you know the financial system that we're used to seeing pop up on CNBC or the Bloomberg uh, relies on data being shared and the sense of um, of uh, trillions of dollars being 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 traded each day on the on these uh, on these exchanges, that can that can be you know cut, uh, and so that is a you know, that's where you have kind of cascading impacts across um, the rest of the economy. And, you know, we're financial power, we're commercial power, so we're we we're, we're much more asymmetrically exposed to uh, internet um, going down than necessarily uh, some of our adversaries are.
0: How exposed are we? Uh, and when uh, or. Let me rephrase that question. How how exposed are militaries to this sort of disruption? Has, for instance, the United States military and the Chinese military and the Russian military been able to get themselves away from being dependent on some of these same networks? Or are they in a similar sort of situation? I ask because, I mean, I feel like every, if you read Ghost Fleet or 2034, Mm -hmm. all of these novels that are coming out, imagining a third world war um, that is usually pitting the US against China, Um, It all starts with, oh, the the Chinese were able to hack into a system and the US didn't, was unable to have their ships work because we were reliant on networks. But the one ship that wasn't on the network, Battlestar Galactica style, saves the day and everything is fine. So I'm I'm wondering how serious is this, not just from a corporate perspective, but from Mm -hmm. a military perspective, are are, our defense forces as dependent on these things as we have become on them in our daily lives?
1: The short answer is yes. Um... It's more complicated. Exactly how? I mean, they're fundamentally different networks, right? So the Pentagon is, isn't communicating over sort of the same um, fiber optic cables for uh, for their um, for their core uh, command and control um, and intelligence uh, uh, communications. So they have their own their, their own systems, and those systems are subject to um, intense uh, uh, intelligence collection and um, adversary disruption. Um, especially with the rise of what you might call like network centric warfare, the Chinese military doctrine is is uh, informationatized? I think that's the right word, um, warfare, this idea of, um, which really, you know, the United States kind of demonstrated really in the, in the Gulf War of uh, being able to have an integrated sensor communications network, uh, coordinate sort of joint operations in a wartime environment, and rapidly share information through, through data fusion over um, satellite networks, kind of local tactical communication networks, like that was the sort of, you know, actually the Chinese studied that realized this is the way of of, of future warfare. And that's, you know, only accelerated and is going to continue to accelerate. Um, There's a lot of research that's been going on for a number of years in um, how to, you know, at different scales, there's sort of strategic level scales, we have systems like nuclear weapons, which like can never fail. And there's all sorts of, you know, primary, secondary, tertiary communication systems to ensure that you know, the, the like the nuclear launch codes get to their desired targets. Uh, all that's very classified, but there, you know, those are certain systems. They're standalone systems for the nuclear command and control. Um, uh, and then there's, you know, a range of sort of battlefield communications, tactical communication systems from, uh, you know, satellites that are in different orbits to uh, airborne kind of relay uh, to kind of local self healing is the idea kind of mesh networks between different systems. So the basic premise of our current kind of operational battlefield for, for, for communications is the sort of web of, of communications and tactical data links between ships, you know, underwater vehicles, drones, satellites, all the way back to kind of the, the, the commanders at, at the, both the, the theater, the regional, and the, um, the strategic level back in the, in, in the United States. So like, there is a premise that we will have, or that that network will remain uh, relatively undegraded in order to prosecute our, our military objectives in any conflict. As you can imagine, adversary states like China are investing heavily in the ability to um, to disrupt, uh, degrade, or destroy those those battlefield networks. Um, and they're investing a lot in um, what you might call uh, electronic warfare capabilities, uh, whether that's disrupting satellites, uh, which you can do a lot of different ways. Um, you can dazzle them with lasers, so their optics basically can't see everything, which is sort of like non-destructive interference with satellites. Um, all the way up to you can sort of park a um, like a follower satellite that uh, that could just either jam or physically send a projectile into uh, another satellite. Um, potentially, can uh, do other things. Um, take control of it potentially. Um, so, like space warfare is is, is a thing, uh, and that is intimately connected into you know communications because one of the main functions of our of our of the satellites is, is is to support communications. Um, so yeah, it is. I, I read Ghost Fleet and the idea that there's some sort of secret switch that the Chinese can flip and then everything goes dark. I think that's probably an exaggeration. <laughs> um, I won't be giving any sort of classified assessments. Um, but like this is not as simple as that. There isn't like one master root capability that just allows you to like flip the, the switch and everything is now dead, right? Um, but they're investing a lot of capabilities across lots of different domains, targeting specific systems. The, the US h- invests heavily in red teaming their own systems, you know? So, you know, there's elements of the US government who specialize in like simulating what an adversary would try to do against a certain platform, Like, How would you try to hack into like an aircraft carrier systems? And what are its vulnerabilities? And just like, you know, a corporation would wanna, you know, look at how its vulnerabilities are, um, you know, can be exploited. The the Defense Department does the same thing. Uh, And so there is a constant game of cat and mouse. Are we actually capturing all the potential vulnerabilities? Ways our systems could be hacked uh, or disrupted and what can we do to mitigate that? Um, so yeah, in, in any real conflict, it's never as clean as like uh, you know neither neither the offensive capabilities are guaranteed to work, but neither are your defensive um, mitigations uh, guaranteed to work. And it's a question of you know what's your backup plan. Um, and you know the U.S. Navy, I think a few, I don't exactly know when, but you know started training uh, you know their um, their sailors on like star navigation, right? Like the backup to the to the backup to the backup. When you've got nothing, when you're just totally dead in the water, but you have a functioning engine and mil- and, and weapon systems, can you can you still engage? Can you still navigate? Uh, and and you know have at least some tactical um, capability uh, sustained? So it is an issue. Um, it's very it's very much uh, a lot of those actual vulnerabilities are certainly classified, but um, it's certainly uh, you know one aspect of the United States capability that needs to be um, you know, heavily examined, in, especially in a conflict you know with a peer state like China. That's Investing specifically in capabilities to to hit that aspect of our um, of our capabilities.
0: Yeah, I I want to talk a little bit more about cyber warfare, but before we get there and leave this general topic, I, I want to ask about China and five G and Huawei mm. and that whole thing. It's the one part of this conversation where I'm I'm I know enough to be a little bit dangerous because it has five <laughs> G has intersected intersected geopolitics in a major way because the United States basically said you know huawei is the they make the best kit for the least for the for the lowest price and most you know emerging markets when they looked at do i pick nokia or ericsson or huawei i'll, I'll take the cheap one that still works i don't care like what are the chinese going to come to equatorial guinea and and solve or or spy on what we're doing and that's going to affect us somehow like most countries don't sort of think that um do you think that fears about huawei gear and in 5g networks were overhyped um, do you think it, it sort of goes to the psychology of, oh, like if the gear is in the network, then they'll be able to flip a switch and get access to anything? Or is there a real danger that if you have any kind of Chinese made gear in a in a wireless network system or anywhere, that that is a backdoor into these situations? And that could be the sort of long term implication of having a company like Huawei be as dominant as it is in the world.
1: Yeah. so certainly Huawei, ZTE and those sorts of hardware manufacturers, you should just bank on the fact that, uh, you know, Anything the Chinese want to get from those networks, they can. Whether they are actively getting it in a sort of active collection mode, you know, I can't say. But the capability to to get whatever they want out of those systems um, exists. That's that's definitely the case. Um, but I think it's broader than that, right? And it wouldn't just restrict the the threat surface to specifically Chinese um, companies installing those sorts of systems. You know, there's, there's been stories um, in the public domain for a number of years um, about you know the the risk of um, uh, hardware being seeded into Western electronic supply chains that, that allows um, uh, the Chinese to sort of on-demand activate, what you might call it, like sleeper uh, agents inside a particular um, network that has installed certain servers. Um, so that's been a, a very, you know, and, and we're getting to the point now where like the, the hardware um, uh, manipulations sort of happen at the, like the chip level uh, mm-hmm. when they're manufacturing them. And they're, you know, the ones that were discovered like seven, eight years ago were like microscopic. So you can imagine where they are now. Um, extremely sophisticated. Not something that you'd just be able to tell. Um, and these things went undetected for for many years. Um, and it took a major sort of whole whole government effort to sort of get get various Western companies to sort of strip out those that, that that infrastructure and, and replace it. Um, so that that is a major. You know, we, often you, the conversation about reliance on China from a chip perspective. Has strategic national implications when it comes to, uh, you know, basic economic. Right? Can we get the next iPhone? You know, our reliance on that as a, a, a just a supply chain to support economic activity and the production of consumer goods. But there are there is also, you know, the Chinese government, like any government, would look at that and be like, well, this is an excellent opportunity to, um, you know, compromise Western commercial and government networks. And, uh, and you know, they've invested a lot to trying to uh, trying to leverage that capability. Um, so yes, uh, I think people underestimate the ability of the Chinese to um, focus on leveraging their their position and supply of these um, of these electronic components to support their uh, intelligence and strategic objectives. Um, like any state, you should expect them to apply any any measures they can, um, and even when they're caught, like there is no other option. So uh, yeah, bro, there's very few other options. And as yeah, to your point, right, some states just don't really care. Right, they're just trying to bootstrap. Their economy up up from you know a really basic level and you know their 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 trade off calculation is yeah well we don't really care if they can listen to everything we have to say like at least our society gets you know s- you know functioning cellular networks and we we can now have a digital economy and, and the GDP growth from that like more than um, counterbalances any potential um, uh, you know espionage threat and like to your point like the Chinese people think about like espionage from a perspective of Oh, they're going to be able to get our information, but really, the Chinese have a very specific national objective to um, indigenize Western technology in order to create more self-sufficiency and also to capture, quote, unquote, like the leadership position in a number of like key strategic industries. You know, they targeted these sort of the Made in 2025 um, industries is like really the focus of their um, industrial uh, um, espionage and sort of economic intelligence collection. And so, yeah, a lot of these you know countries that don't have those sorts of industries will be like, well, we're not going to be the focus of that collection uh, anyways, and so. We can at least get the cheap you know haul, uh, uh, hallway equipment um but I think you've seen in the past few years the the warnings from Western intelligence officials become louder and louder um, and becoming a lot more pointed at Western multinationals who uh, have sort of you know implicitly made this strategic trade off with globalization where you know get capturing the Chinese market kind of was the was the principal um uh sort of decision factor um and you know i think now that the fact that china is probably uh hitting a recession and is not likely to continue the kind of the rapid pace of, of sort of credit fuel um explosive growth uh that uh, that they were able to maintain for the past uh 10-15 years uh you know makes that makes that calculation a little bit easier in the minds of western multinationals who are also sort of now post post ukraine kind of reappraising the geopolitical risk premium associated um with their um with their globalized uh, corporate operations, which are ha- which also have a network element to them, right? So a lot of companies not only went out and um, uh, you know developed uh, you know it, intense interests in China and other countries as part of sort of the wave of globalization. Like this is where our growth is going to come from. But they then built their corporate networks with this that sort of premise, a sort of globalized, relatively flat, centrally managed uh, sort of enterprise networks and architectures that basically gave, you know, an employee in China, you know, a laptop that was fundamentally very similar to a laptop in, you know, Sacramento, right? Uh, and, and then try to manage that corporate network, uh, especially with like, a, you know, a mode towards collaboration and information sharing. And how do we, you know, you know, we learn from certain aspects of our operation over here that should be shared with everyone else around the world. And that, that was sort of built into um, a lot of companies' mindsets. And now that's having to go a little bit in reverse. Um, now they're all not like, let's get out of China, right? Like it's more of a, how do we prepare? How do we posture for potential um, escalation scenarios? And how do we, um, you know, kind of isolate our networks or restructure our, our network architecture in such a way as to mitigate the potential impacts um, uh, of, you know, uh, in- increasing conflict or, or friction between the United States and, and China. Um, and so that's where the sort of cyber element starts to play into some of these corporate decisions uh, and yeah that, that is just now kind of hitting um, hitting kind of a new level it started really with the banks in Hong Kong at the national security law and they were kind of the center of the bull'seye and Hong Kong was sort of uh, where you would expect at the start uh, Hong Kong was sort of the bridge between the Western financial system and China like that was their uh, sort of raise on debt is acting as kind of that, that that point of funnel and kind of transition between these two different economic systems um, and when they when the Chinese basically fully uh, envelop them into kind of the Chinese system, a lot of the sort of Western banks there had to kind of recalibrate uh their their, their position. And now that's that line of thinking and that um uh posture for kind of uh, uh security is expanding in sort of uh circles <laughs> out, out to other industries that uh that, that believe they may be subject to uh, sort of increasing attention by the Chinese government.
0: Yeah that, that brings up a two part question for me which is number one how far does this go? So, for instance, we, we, I at least experience a lot of companies thinking about nearshoring or reshoring operations. And they think largely in terms of politics or geography or how much labor is there and what are the costs, what are the regulations. But, I mean, let's take a very practical example like Mexico, which, as far as I know, has not ruled out having Huawei in any of its wireless networks and uh, doesn't want the United States to tell it what to do on its networks, especially under this particular government. Should a U.S. company that wants to expand in Mexico be worried that Mexican networks are built with Chinese gear and that that exposes them to some kind of vulnerability or that the United States government might limit their ability to operate there? That's the first part of the question. Then the Mm -hmm. second part of the question is we're talking a lot about U.S. and China because they're the two main Mm -hmm. actors, but there's a whole rest of the world out there. So are we looking at a world where it really is sort of you're in like the U.S. trust network, or you're in the Chinese trust network, or are we looking at a world where Japan's going to have its own, and Turkey's going to have its own, and Russia's going to have its own, and maybe you know some of these networks are really shitty because they have bad gear and they're they're building stuff from scratch. But you're going to have to um, basically traverse these different cyber and digital obstacles every time you're going into a new market, rather than the sort of as you said, globalized horizontal world that we've gotten used to. So that, there's a two part question there.
1: Yes. So the first question with respect to, say, like Mexico is an example where just because they're using Chinese equipment, um, does that pose a threat to them? And I would say risk is a spectrum. And uh, just because there's a potential latent capability doesn't mean that capability um, uh, will be um, leveraged against you as a particular target. And so that's often where people kind of make, you know, the judgment jump is there is a threat. Therefore, I have to take an action. And, you know, it's a risk calculation. How much risk do you think you want to accept? And the premise of that calculation is how likely am I, as a particular industry, going to be targeted by the Chinese? Uh, and, and you know, that depends on what sort of what, you, what industry you're in. So if you're in a really sensitive, uh, both from a U.S. perspective, say you're an aerospace defense company that's got some really, you know, juicy tech uh, and IP, the Chinese are definitely interested in, in, in capturing. They're going to try to go after that IP, like wherever it is in the world right? And and they're not just going to, um, you know, uh, not try to target you because you're not using a Huawei network, right? They're going to try to use insider thread. They're going to try to use um, more direct penetrations, all sorts of, you know, the full spectrum of kind of intelligence operations to get at like that really high value IP uh, that they want. Um, and so if you think you're potentially subject to that, well, then your risk um, uh, uh, sort of posture should be much higher than, than anyone else. Um, if you're just, you know, making, you know, Con- cheap consumer goods or durables, the Chinese don't really need that IP. Right? They already have that in spades. They're not going to waste, um, you know, the intelligence effort uh, or the rep- or their relationship with a third party government like Mexico at targeting you just because, you know, just because you're existing on their system. Um, and so even in China, right, this is a question, right? Like if you're operating in a certain industry that the Chinese are really not prioritizing, the chances of you becoming the subject of like a, a direct, uh, uh, target of an espionage operation is, is relatively low. Um, and especially if you're operating you know, with good best practices for your own corporate security and insider threats, right, like you would do against any competitor, right, you're more likely worried about com- your competitors taking your information than, like, the Chinese government uh, uh, necessarily. And so the same practices you would do to, you know, protect your IP, your trade secrets, your corporate networks um, against uh, not only the Chinese government, but just against ransomware actors, against anyone that might want to, um, you know, disrupt you, like, that's a best practice. Uh And and there's a, you know, there's there's sort of, it's on a spectrum, right? So the other key development, and the reason why China in particular is more of a focus for certain uh, sort of Western multinationals is not just like the technical aspects of, you know, how they approach their intelligence collection, but like the policy environment. So there are, there have been laws passed in China that uh, are, you know, and it's like rule by law, right? Not rule of law in China. And so it's a pretty broad and expansive. Um, policy requirements on all firms operating in China that uh, apply to all the potential data that those corporations, uh, corporations might hold, um, and that potentially put you know them under a risk of being compelled to share information with the Chinese government that maybe they would rather not share, whether it's information about their clients, information about um, their corporate operations, their corporate employees, et cetera. And so there, it's like a it's a jurisdictional matter, right? If that data sits in a, a server in China. That can be, you know, that that can get a uh, a visit by a Chinese uh, uh, government official. That is high risk. You would mind, and you if you don't want that data to be, you know, easily accessible to the Chinese government by just, you know, coming and knocking on the door with a piece of paper, you would want to move that data out of the country, right? And still have access to it from your Chinese operation potentially, but but it's sort of outside the reach of the Chinese jurisdiction. And so that is a lot of the consideration now is what sorts of data potentially is subject to these. Uh, this sort of policy trend. Um, and then, you know, the basic mitigation for that is just to move it, you know, to another location outside outside of China, an um, APAC region where your Chinese operation can still use it, but it doesn't, you know, itself, it's not vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, and also trying to assess out what sorts of data do we have that we think the Chinese government would want to get, right? Because you don't want to just move everything just for the sake of everything. And that might have effects on your business operation, your performance. And again, we're still in this environment where like, China is still a market for Western multinationals and it's, you know, we're still heavily invested in this uh, country, They're not ready to just like do a full 180 and just exit the Chinese market, right? Um, and so that it's like, how do we accommodate, how do we prepare and mitigate um, against the rising geopolitical uh, risk, but also this policy trend and what can we do to our, our networks and our data to kind of mitigate that risk? Um, but that's where the focus is right now, the, the sort of reshoring, friendshoring trend it really is going to be subject to what is your industry? Do you, are you likely to be a target or not? And if you are likely to be a target, well, then anywhere you are, you, you, you should think about um, your risk uh, from a, from that perspective.
0: Um, before we turn to some other topics, um, I wanted to ask, so um, we, we've been talking a little bit in abstract terms. Has there ever been what you would classify as a cyber war in our in in human history yet. I think Mm -hmm. one of the things that people were surprised with was that like, or, and and maybe I'm just not paying attention to the right things, Mm -hmm. but in this Russia-Ukraine war, there have been some things, but it doesn't seem to me that it's been as intense as it could be. We get all Mm -hmm. sorts of doomsday scenarios about, oh, they're going to hack the water. People are going to do this to each other Mm -hmm. and nobody does it. And maybe it's a mutually assured destruction sort of thing. Um, But it seems to me that most of the real serious types of things that impact our daily lives when it comes to cyber, cyber is some group that's going to hack the colonial pipeline in your example or something like that mm-hmm. i don't it doesn't feel like we have seen full state on state here are all of our capabilities we're going after you and achieving some strategic objective with our cyber capability it, it doesn't seem to me like that's happened so am i just am i not paying attention uh is is it more of a fear in the future sort of thing and that when the gloves come off in a real conflict we would see this sort of stuff help me mm-hmm. parse through the level of conflict we've seen in the world
1: you're, you're right. We haven't seen, quote, unquote, like what Leon Panetta called back in like 2012 is like the cyber Pearl Harbor moment, right? Um, and that was when sort of cyber was sort of emerging as this um, new domain in uh, U.S. government defense and sort of policy circles. Um, and there, there was that perception in that early phase of this topic as there being this, you know, potential bolt from the blue, everything will just not work, right? There's like the, um, uh, uh, what was the movie uh, with Bruce Willis? The, the uh, anyways, but the, the, the idea, like, like that, like we'll just take down everything, right? That like a hacker can find like the one piece of malware that's going to like take down the grid, right? Um, that that's really not the case, right? Like you know, all these systems like are fundamentally um, vulnerable, but also there's a lot of them, and they all have different vulnerabilities to a certain extent. And so, if you really want to have like a debilitating society-wide effect, it's going to require a massive investment of resources on the attacker side. It's very vulnerable because it's like a perishable um, access. You have to constantly maintain access to those networks. It's not like you just build the missile and it's like ready to be fired. You've got to constantly be, and, you, and your attacker is looking for you. I mean, your, def- your, your adversary is looking for you the whole time. And so your capability of, say, accomplishing that, that, that um, effect is going to wax and wane, potentially. Mm. Um, and so it's not as reliable as an instrument of national power as like a weapon system, which is like we press the button, the missile goes. And so the, it's sort of lack of um, predictability. On the offender side, um, makes them a little bit he- more hesitant to use it because if you try to press the button, quote you know, so to speak, you know, you you task the SBR and the GRU and everyone like go 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 big guys, and if it fizzles out or it doesn't cause the effect that you want, like you're now really vulnerable because you should expect that like we can do the same same thing to you maybe more, mm-hmm. um, and so this is where the aspect of like cyber deterrence is like a is a really um, intense field of research because with mutual assured destruction, those sort of deterrence models basically assume that like, you know, like the nukes will get there. Most of them will get there. And so it's a matter of like, uh, then reasoning and sort of, you know, the um, the Von Neumann right calculation that the RAND guys did is like, okay, like, you know, okay, this is like a stable deterrence regime of mutual assured destruction. The, inst- the sort of the risk of cyber is really the fact that it's not as predictable and therefore it's hard to create kind of the game theoretic anchor point, right? Sort of the, like the shelling point where we all mutually recognize the effectiveness of each other's capabilities and therefore we should like 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 refrain from engaging in them a little more of an unstable dynamic there where because you might have ambiguity that might lead you to be more risk averse or it might lead you to be um more risk seeking because you think you can actually hit the other guy and undermine his ability to then launch a counterstrike in the in the in, in the very act of you attacking them first right mm. um, and so that is a very complicated and this is like this is um a posture this government moved in the past few is called like defend forward Which is a nice, like, uh, kind of, uh, I don't know, like um, Orwellian term. It's like you're basically hacking the other guy, right? You are engaged in an offensive operation. You are penetrating an adversary's networks to establish persistent access, Um, and you have to do that like constantly in order to maintain the presence in the network that uh, you would need if, say, you know, Commander in Chief said, "I need, I want you to, you know, execute this operation." Um, You know, we became public after the. the election with how we took down the internet research agency and, you know, we've indicted, you know, Russian hackers, Chinese hackers, North Korean hackers, Iran. Uh, there's like the, t- the top four kind of cyber States. Um, and there's a constant game kind of taking place, kind of in the intelligence uh, world of, you know, back and forth. Right. But it's maintained at that level. We haven't seen it sort of trigger into an all out kind of, we're going to take down your grid, your water treatment plants, your financial networks, your hospital systems, you know, <laughs> take your self driving cars and crash them into a ditch. Right. Like there's like, all sorts of bad things you can imagine happening. We haven't seen those happen, um, but I, you know, and that's the debate right now is uh, with Russia. Like, was it a was it a paper tiger, right? Was it a did we overhype their capabilities, and we just haven't seen, uh, uh, you know, what 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 we thought we were going to see? And I kind of come down the middle. I think um, there were a lot of attacks on, on on Ukraine, but I think the Russians in their in their model were like, we don't want to destroy their infrastructure because we're going to have this. Um, you know, uh, uh multi axis invasion. We're going to, we're going to take Kiev. We're going to assassinate their leadership and our, our sleeper agents are going to rise, uh, you know, and we're basically going to have this, um, this, uh, this sort of fate accompli after a week. Right. And so there just wasn't, and that was going to be accomplished by like boots on the ground, right? Like, like, like BTGs moving across borders. And when you're doing that, like cyber is like a side thing, right? So they, they did have some major hacks on, on some satellite, uh, uh, communications, uh, 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 networks that were effective and, you know, disrupted Ukrainian um, command and control to a certain extent. That's why actually they actually brought in Starlink. <laughs> Starlink is now providing essentially strategic local capabilities uh, to Ukraine uh, uh, to do kind of drone and artillery targeting and, and all sorts of things. Um, and, and, you know, that's a whole separate question about the rise of Starlink in a, like a Taiwan scenario is also relevant now. Um, but that's where, you know, I sort of come in the middle of, they just didn't really build in their battle plan, which was poorly thought through together. But I'm not sure that would be the case. Like, I I'm not sure how much I would generalize that um, in any other conflict scenario. Um, you know, the, a lot of... Uh, there is, like, this, the, the rise of, like, hacktivists that are sort of semi-state-sponsored. Um, like, Finland was just hit by DDoS. Again, it's not, like, going to take down their whole society, right? But it's part of the general um, pattern that you should expect to take place. Uh, China's a whole different story. Uh, you know, China has... The, the real number's classified, but, like, probably hundred thousand to two hundred thousand people just dedicated to like cyber operations basically for the government right like, this, like, <laughs> well, this is like well these are people that are like just like constantly right this is like much it's like a, I I don't know ten times more than we have right um so it, like that that in itself is a qu- quantity has a quality all its own right like and and so the Russians don't have just you know they have really Good kind of niche capabilities, and they are a high threat actor. Um, but also, you know, we know how to target them. We've demonstrated our ability to kind of get into their operational networks um, and mess around. Uh, not just us, but our allies too have like really good um, uh, access to their systems and can can mess around. Like I think it was the Dutch basically had access to the CCTV cameras inside like the GRU facility and like had video of guys typing on the on the on the computers. Um, so there's no such of, of of systems. Um, so I guess that's a lot of jabbering. I'd say the net uh, assessment that I would have is the risk of, say, domestic uh, uh, cyber attacks that have, uh, you know, large-scale physical consequences, whether it's to the grid whether it's to the water treatment plants, that's still a very live possibility. It's very hard to put a probability on that, right? (laughs) Um, But it's not something that I would just, like, discount uh, purely based off of like the Ukraine uh, example, I think people would tend to overgeneralize from that one particular conflict, and that there'd be different conditions, different capabilities, different adversaries in play, in um, other scenarios. Uh, and especially in, in the situation where um, it's not just the cyber element of like you know pure malware, right? Like I've gotten persistence on your network and I can take control. I can turn I can turn things on, turn things off, sort of mess around. I can you know just brick your system, whatever it is. That that's like well known, but in any large scale conflict, say with like a pure adversary, there's going to be other things that that are combined with that, right? Like that are cutting the cables, physical sabotage, uh, activating insider threats that are like really valuable capabilities that you would only use in like a certain a certain scenario. And so it's it, that's like where it goes from you know this low level kind of battle to that oh you have these I don't know China would call them like assassins' mace, right? Like the the real in the in the deep. Capability that you only pull out right in the in the most extreme circumstances, and any reasoning or observations you have in this domain are not going to tell you anything about that domain, um, and that's where people have this sort of linear extrapolation. It's like, oh well, we see ransomware, we see these sorts of attacks, but you know there is these this other domain that if things really kicked off, it'd be a, you haven't seen that before. So um, very hard to say. But also we do a lot of preparing and posturing for those scenarios specifically, and a lot of intelligence collection goes into that, and so like. There is this, you know, well, how effective our mitigation is going to be, um, but I wouldn't be too sanguine about the risks uh, just because, you know, like when we have a hurricane where we can get par- like, like our, like, even if the adversaries capabilities aren't, you know, like the big, the big scary monster, right? Like our domestic ne- networks infrastructure are not all that strong. <laughs> so it's like, they don't need to have like this game changing cyber capability to like flip the lights off, like that lights like, just go off because we have a bad storm, right? So uh, it doesn't take much to tip some of our these systems which are intensely interconnected, d- dynamic coupled systems where even if you don't take down every you know, transformer, if you just hit one, like that can, that can cause some problems. Um, so that's where you know, I think you know, domestic fragility, you know, that's the variable you have to analyze with respect to the adversary's capability. Um, and so even if the adversary's capability isn't as high as you think it is, your domestic uh, resilience may not be that high uh, uh, either. And so it's, you kind of have to build that up too if you want to have some sort of psychological um, uh, uh, you know, sense of uh, security, which I don't think we should, yeah. should
0: feel right now. I mean, speaking from personal experience, our domestic resiliency in the <laughs> Gulf Coast region, which you know only the place where most of our agricultural exports go in and out of the country, large percentage of energy production, you, know, you name it, like our, our domestic resilience sucks here um let's put a pin in that and we'll come back Mm -hmm. to cybersecurity um in the future but before i let you go um i want to let you riff on bitcoin a little bit because i didn't realize what a what an evangelist you were until you sent me some of your stuff and i've been reading through it and seeing some of your bitcoin appearances um i even wrote down a sentence i wanted to play devil's advocate uh with you about Mm -hmm. which was um and we'll have a link to this white paper in the in the podcast description, listeners. But you describe Bitcoin at one point as a politically neutral reserve asset. And I would think that somebody with your background in philosophy and physics and all these other things would would uh, agree with me that there is no such thing as a politically neutral piece of technology full stop. So tell me why you think Bitcoin is politically neutral, because I get that it's not tied to any one country or something like that, but it seems Mm -hmm. pretty clear to me that it is very political and has an overt, I I wouldn't even call it, it's like an overt political agenda that's attached to it. We can debate whether it's hopeful Mm -hmm. or optimistic too, but part of your argument was that it was apolitical and that doesn't seem right to me. So what am I missing?
1: Well, maybe you know, there's a nuance to shade between jurisdictionally neutral and politically neutral because political, mm-hmm. but that term has a valence that, yeah, under a certain interpretation, you might say um, uh, is, 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 is not a fair representation. When I say politically neutral, I mean, like, jurisdictionally neutral in a sense of, like, a reserve asset. Like, gold is jurisdictionally neutral. Like, gold isn't the liability of a particular nation state or jurisdiction, right? Like uh, the, the dollar or other reserve currencies are, right? So that's the principle frame which I was making that statement is... It is not the liability of a particular jurisdiction. Your ability to use it isn't subject to um, the uh, sort of access approval of that jurisdiction, right? So any G7 um, uh, fiat currency uh, reserve asset is subject to the constraint uh, and approval of the issuers of of those currencies. And so that's the principal um, dimension upon which I was making the assessment of it being um, politically neutral in that sense. What's your point about... The broader sociological valence associated with Bitcoin, uh, having a sort of you know a, a more kind of like an anti-state modality, yeah. right? Like that's kind of I think what what you're what you're pointing at, right? Most of the kind of original evangelists of Bitcoin, sort of cyberpunk kind of crypto anarchists, right, really focused on this is a peer-to-peer money because it's not state issued. It allows the sort of formation of uh, kind of individual to individual um, uh, uh, sort of transaction relationships, and yeah, there has been that strain of sort of political thought built into the culture around Bitcoin. Um, and so, the extent that you analyze Bitcoin as a socio-technical system, right? It's it's very hard to untangle the that culture from the tool itself, the protocol itself. Hmm. Uh, but I think even though that's maybe historically the case, you know, when you read the Bitcoin code doesn't doesn't say re- like anything about politics or jurisdictions, right? It just says here's a protocol for uh, you know engaging in certain transactions, right? This is the like the this is the UTXO set, here's the here are the key protocol rules. There's no politics built into the, the to the technology. And then I said it's sort of like you could say like the early internet, right? Like had a certain ideology associated with it. When it was sort of coming out of of of, uh, of the garage so to speak like of the early cyber associated with the internet had a certain, say, quasi-political ideology, right? They thought that, and the same sort of thing with the rise of encryption, right? Like encryption uh, technology was about how to secure you know, individual freedom, right? And to the extent that as a political ideology, it um, you was know, opposed to authoritarian systems, then yes, it has a political valence, right? There's no purely neutral technology. Um, and yeah, that is a key uh, point that is uh, very relevant, right? So you yeah, I think about Bitcoin in the same way as the sort of the, the early debates about encryption and the internet, you know, confronted existing systems of power, existing systems of of, of um, conceptions of political governance, and this is going to be a very active uh, site of of political and philosophical contest that I think Bitcoin is going to um, uh, uh, precipitate. So yeah, I'm very interested in, in those questions uh, in particular. Um, so yeah, I don't mean to sweep under the rug. This is just a purely neutral technology, and it's just going to kind of hum away. Um, but just like the you know rise of encryption and the internet. You know there was this um like they were political debates right there was a there was a you know bills tried to be passed to ban encryption um and there were like big political fights and i think there was an encrypt uh, a cryptographer i forget his name but basically like he like, like specifically focused on on pgp um like, like printed out like the, the code basically like here's how i can i, I can print this out you're gonna stop me from just like writing these you know uh you know numbers down um that was that was that was a, you know uh, a flashpoint of kind of the the conflict between you know the state prerogatives right for security uh, and you know systems of, of 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 law enforcement and the open internet and systems of open and free kind of peer to peer engagement and where you draw the line as a society between what sort of domain kind of you know like how big that domain gets where, where, you know it's essentially it's essentially this this tit for tat. Um, and that's what you're seeing in a new version of uh, uh, with the rise of Bitcoin.
0: Yeah. Uh, the other thing that struck me, and that's a great answer. The the other thing that struck me in your paper was, I mean, I feel like many of the many people accept that Bitcoin is an asset and think of it as sort of an asset similar, like you said, to gold. Like, I think the I would say that the mainstream thinking about Bitcoin is that, like you said, you don't want to be. Exposed to monetary policy decisions by a particular government, so if you hold this asset, you can beat inflation, or you're not subject to those same sorts of to those same sorts of problems. Um, but you you take it a step further and you really sort of write about Bitcoin as a currency, a real cryptocurrency, and something that is used as a real means of exchange. And, and thinking about that over time, which. I mean, I guess El Salvador is trying to do that with mixed results. And for political reasons of their own, they seem to take a nice percentage of the transaction fee of stuff like that <laughs> down there. And like, um, it's an interesting tool for the authoritarians. But talk to me a little bit about why you think Bitcoin is going to become not just a, a digital storehouse of value, which I can kind of, that is a is a argument I can see clearly. But the, the jump to actual currency is a little harder for me to, to visualize.
1: Well, to be clear, I have no, like, Fixed assumption about how this could, could unfold. There's lots of uh, there's a distribution of scenarios, and I have sort of um, you have different credences applied to to that distribution of probabilities, yeah, yeah. Um, and and how I assess like different scenarios under which Bitcoin monetizes to a certain end state are sort of subject to other auxiliary assumptions about the evolution of the geopolitical system, the associated monetary system there. Um, so it's harder for me to assess Bitcoin like in with that as like the you know. Um, you know, hypo, uh, hypothetical end state without assuming how like the, the larger global system mm. is also going to uh, uh, evolve. Like there, are, like there are other things that have to happen or that will happen if that's the course of events. Um, and, and so there's both, that's a very complicated question, right? Like you'd have to make some uh, additional analytical um, uh, kind of claims about the status of the global reserve currency, the dollar, the treasury uh, reserve asset the success or lack of success associated with, say, a rising Eurasian power block that tries to move towards a commodity or a gold back, like regional reserve standard, uh, lots of other things. The avoidance of World War III, lots sort of things can sort of get in the way, right, <laughs> of, of, of Bitcoin becoming successful to different stages, right? So that's like the external, you we call it, like um, the exogenous uh, kind of analytical frame, which you could go into, into um, some depth. And I wrote like one paper that I tried to look at just one scenario where you could see something like this happening, but it's mm-hmm. hard to say like this is the scenario and this is definitely the way it, it'll play out. Um, and that's like, you know, a whole nother uh, domain of, of analysis. But just like the endogenous uh, analysis of Bitcoin itself, like what it would like um, uh, sort of uh, AOIpso prevent it from serving as a currency, uh, well, there like the, the, real, the real function is volatility, right? So things become a unit of account after having Sort of establish themselves as being a means of stable, um, uh, transaction, right? <laughs> like if I'm going to pay for lunch tomorrow and hold a certain currency, the reason why I hold that currency is because I think it's going to pay for the same sandwich tomorrow, uh, you know, and, and a week from now. Um, and that means the volatility over that time scale has to be, um, low enough so that people feel confident in holding it. Like that's the basic premise about what makes a, a, uh, a, a transaction, um, vehicle. You might call it like a medium of exchange. So it's like there's three, three parts of money, the store of value, medium of exchange, unit of account. Uh, and you might see like the, pr- the precondition for a store of value is just like a collectible, right? So something that people want to hold because, you know, uh, it has some semantic or cultural value. Uh, and then if that's proven out over time, then it usually acquires, uh, you know, a, a social consensus that the thing is a store of value. Like if you believe and other people believe uh, that's something is gonna be valuable over time that usually um, uh, forms a locus of, 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 uh, of social consensus that then reifies that object, that monetary good as having the properties that make the story value. Um, so all monies are essentially sociological phenomena, right? There have to be certain real physical properties associated with that thing that can uh, allow it to form a locus for such social consensus. Um, and then that, you know, through like the Lindy effect, reifies over time becomes much more historically durable. Uh, so it's very important to separate out, like in the current monetary system, the reserve currency status of the dollar as a transaction currency, right, to facilitate trade, to denominate uh, you know, international uh, 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 commerce and the liabilities thereof. That sort of, you know, grease the skids of derivatives market, swaps market, interest rates, forwards, etc. <laughs> like the reason why the dollar has a, a very uh, uh, strong penetration in the global do- in the global system. Uh, is because of the sort of network effects associated with the dollar as a unit of account and as a medium of exchange. Those are exceptionally strong. And just like a network effect that you join because other people join, it gets stronger because more people are are, are in the network. That's very different from the uh, reserve asset status of the treasury security, which is the most demanded form of collateral in the offshore dollar market. um, And is also by regulation through Basel III uh, and and other uh, sort of um, uh, compliance regimes you know, banks, insurance companies, pensions have to hold this reserve asset on their books, and so the demand for the reserve reserve asset is a function of things like, uh, you know, inflation expectations and uh, its liquidity as as a form of collateral to support, uh, you know, sort offshore offshore dollar uh, leverage and, and 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 the the rehypothecation um, that uh, that those sorts of securities can can enable. And so when I see like Bitcoin, I, I sort of looking through the lens of okay, it's a uh, speculative store value, uh, very limited, like a 500 billion total market cap. And so for it to serve as like a global reserve asset at the level of the treasury security, it has to be at least 10 times larger, more likely 50 times larger. Yeah. Um, so clearly no, nowhere in the near term horizon is it going to supplant the role of the treasury security as a global reserve asset. Um, and so when I think about these things as like historical timescales and examine different scenarios. But I think it's it's, Discounted as a possibility in most geopolitical forecasts for, say, the next 10 years as being something that could have strategic relevance. As that has basically been my main focus of just bringing it into the Overton window for a serious analysis. Because if you don't analyze something that, say, is like very small prior probability, you might assign like a 1% chance that, that Bitcoin could monetize the level of gold by 2030. But if that were to happen, it would have strategic and macroeconomically relevant um, uh, uh, effects. And we analyze lots of scenarios that have very low low likelihood but high consequence, mm. and so I would put that in the bucket of things that uh, like whatever your credence is should be a little bit higher. May not be fifty percent, but it should be relatively high to to force like serious analysis of like the what if right and the cascading implications for global uh, the global economic system. Um, but your like basic question: How does Bitcoin? Could Bitcoin serve a role as a as like a vehicle currency? Like not anytime soon, right? Like. Basically, its volatility has to converge to equivalent to what we we now use as um, as current uh, kind of mean uh, of exchange. And volatility is a function of, of, of uncertainty, right? So you could hypothesize this is you know loosely empirically validated, but we only have like 13 years of data, so kind of a weak um, sample set. But that basic hypothesis would be Bitcoin's volatility is a function of uh, as, a, as a function of uncertainty over future adoption. So, like by assumption, if you assumed Bitcoin reached saturation adoption at whatever the total market value could be, you know, I won't pick a number, but like if you assume basically everyone that wanted to use Bitcoin was using Bitcoin and the sort of the marginal future adopter was basically saturated, then the future assumption over future adoption would basically be nil and the volatility associated with Bitcoin's um, purchasing power would roughly correspond to the the, the rate of change of, of productivity on an annual basis, which might be, you know, r- roughly GDP. Um, so a few percentage points. Uh, so in, under that, you know, hypothesis, Bitcoin's volatility could converge to the level of what we have as like, you know, um, uh, you know, current current transactions. That's probably a necessary, maybe not a sufficient condition for it to become, you know, a medium of exchange. Uh, there, it's much more like the geopolitical and the political question, right? Like, will governments, <laughs> like, allow it to, uh, you know, go on that path, right? Like, that is the that's a much more that's that's an exogenous question, right? That's a question of what's the stance of different jurisdictions going to be with respect to Bitcoin? Um, will it be hostile? Will it be neutral? Will it be, um, will it be accommodative? And we're sort of seeing that dynamic play out like right now, right? We're seeing different states take different postures uh, with respect to Bitcoin. And those postures are like uh, like in the act right now of being formulated, right? So President Biden came out with the digital assets executive order just a few months ago, was, like heavy interest in the Senate and the House and formulating legislation about digital assets and Bitcoin. Um, you know, Lots of folks in the White House, and the Treasury Department uh, are starting to take a look at this. Like cryptocurrency used to be just the, the remit of like FinCEN and OFAC Principally through its nexus as a vehicle for like ransomware and and sort of crypto um, uh, related um, or enabled uh, 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 financial crimes, and that's still kind of like I think has has, has loaded the dice uh, in a lot of na- a lot of national security and policymakers' minds because their only encounter with Bitcoin for the past ten years has been bad guys using it, right? <laughs> um, and yet, like the reality has far outstripped that uh, in terms of the, the like the actual use cases in you know non criminal contexts, um, and that's I think you know where you're seeing kind of the uh different perceptions and attitudes kind of being shaped in real time um so yeah it's an open political question right like bitcoin's not inevitable i don't think right there are scenarios that could could delay or or forestall its continued monetization Um, but that's where it moves from just the endogenous like what are the basic capabilities of the network as a peer-to-peer money system you know that can go across borders that doesn't rely on the issuance uh, decisions of 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 a centralized authority that kind of it gives you the baseline. These are the necessary conditions to have a global monetary structure. How you actually go from A to B, where, where B is Bitcoin is a medium of exchange for the global system, there's a lot of steps in between <laughs> that I think you know, you'd have to individually assess uh, the course of events and the probabilities thereof to, to make any statement about the likelihood of that of that end state. And I'm not, I'm, I don't have a... I, I, I presume no special insight as to how likely that the those are
0: well if you do generate that special insight let me know so I can uh, position myself accordingly and get ready to buy my island um, I think and by the way the I remember distinctly when um, boomer congressmen and senators started going on Twitter and tweeting about Bitcoin as if they had suddenly discovered that it was this newfound interest and remember wanting to light myself on fire that these people had suddenly discovered crypto and we're going to talk about it um, in Washington at that level but I think that's. A, oh, sorry. go ahead. Yeah.
1: Well, I was just going to say, like, there, are, there, there's, there's now active interest on, in in Congress trying to, to reach out. Like, I'm actually going to be speaking to a, a U.S. senator on Friday to answer some questions about this. Right? There are people that they realize this is not going away. This isn't a fad. This is now here. Like, they need to like learn about it and understand it and try to like you know, you know, really dig in, It's just like any other policy topic, right? Um, and that's happening now, right? It's just, it just hasn't really been you know a serious thing uh, until recently.
0: Yeah. Um, well, let's. Let's end it there. Like, let's just consider that a little um, hors d'oeuvre for the broader crypto conversation that we'll hopefully uh, have you back on to talk about soon. So, Matt, thanks so much. Have a great day.
1: Yes, thanks for having me.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Cognitive Dissidence podcast brought to you by Cognitive Investments. If you are interested in learning more about Cognitive Investments, you can check us out online at cognitive.investments. That's cognitive.investments. Uh, you can also write to me directly if you want at jacob at Cheers, and we'll see you out there. The views expressed in this commentary are subject to change based on market and other conditions. This podcast may contain certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking statements. Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance, and actual results or developments may differ materially from those projected. Any projections, market outlooks, or estimates are based upon certain assumptions and should not be construed as indicative of actual events that will occur.